There's nothing virtual about online violence. It's extremely visceral. On World Press Freedom Day, the focus is a deceptively simple act, gathering and delivering information. That's long been done in the face of violence, but during a pandemic, it's the online threats that are hitting harder. And women journalists are at the forefront. They, actually we, are three times more likely to face harassment than men. If you search for my name, it's not interviews as a journalist. It's all videos attacking me, accusing me of prosecution, accusing me of being addicted on drugs and on alcohol. I would look over my shoulder and wonder if the car that was slowly creeping behind me, if there was someone in there that was going to shoot me. That's really, I thought I was going to get shot. So today, we're turning the mic on colleagues who face these threats head on to ask what we all lose when women journalists are silenced. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The trolling of journalists has grown commonplace. Many female media professionals are dealing with the kind of hate messages that men will never see. Journalists, particularly female journalists, our social accounts have become an essential tool for reporting and research and a necessary evil. Unfortunately, I didn't have to go too far to find stories. Two Al Jazeera journalists face attacks of their own over the past year, and I watched both play out online. One works in English, the other in Arabic, both covering governments with their own adversarial relationships to the press. Each of them has seen how that can lead to online frenzies. Kimberly Halkett is Al Jazeera's White House correspondent in Washington, D.C. We're out in the lawn of the White House, and it's pretty active right now. (laughs) Spring and the birds chirping. I'm sitting in a chair comfortably for once. Kimberly's seen antagonism towards the press rise and fall in Washington over the years. But over the summer, at the tail end of covering the Trump administration, she saw how it was turbocharged by social media. As a journalist, you always are facing criticism, but it went to a whole new level when I was falsely accused of calling the White House press secretary a lying B-I-T-C-H. This was the moment in question. First, you'll hear the press secretary at the time, Kaylee McEnany, wrapping up an answer to Kimberly. Listen for Kimberly at the end when she responds. I know you don't want to hear them, which is why you talk over me, but I encourage you to read the op-ed. Yes. On the China vaccine research, this yes. is very You've gotten two questions, which is more than some of your colleagues. Yes. Thank you, Kaylee. Okay, okay, you don't want to engage. For the record, I said, okay, you don't want to engage. Here it is again one more time. Yes. Thank you, Kaylee. Okay, you don't want to engage. I don't know how that turned into something else, but... You know, we're living in polarized times where people want to hate the media, and it took on a life of its own. Kimberly's name made the rounds on cable news shows like Tucker Carlson's on Fox News and on social media. Did she swear at the White House press secretary? We don't know. You can kind of see both sides of that. The point is, we're living in a moment where it's entirely conceivable that a White House reporter might do that. I did not hear her say, you do not want to engage. I mean, why would anybody say that during a press conference? 
The White House takes record of its press briefings, and the next day in the transcript, you don't want to engage are the words that showed up. But on Twitter, the next day is an eternity, and the story had taken on a life of its own. Kimberly was swarmed by the far right on social media. And honestly, that didn't totally bother me because I'm used to people saying mean and nasty things and the left and the right says it. So that means that if nobody likes me, I must be doing my job. But when it got really awful was almost 24 hours later when I went home, I realized that they weren't just attacking me. They were also attacking my daughter. And we're not talking just about your mom sucks or something like that. They were sexual. They were demeaning. They were violent to my daughter. And the worst part is that we don't have the same last name. And so they had actually tracked her down and they had tracked down my address. And they were posting things like, your address is all over the internet. It's known as doxing. And I was shocked that I was being doxed. And that's when I got scared. The purpose of doxing is to punish, intimidate, or humiliate the target. And that target could be anyone. Doxing has become a part of life for men and women who are active online. And it's a phenomenon that's very difficult to fight against. Like many women who faced online violence, Kimberly wasn't satisfied with the systems that should have supported her. People always say this, but you find out who your friends are when you need them most. And so it was a pretty small, intimate circle. The people I work with every day here at the White House are the ones that came to my aid immediately. My photographers and I were a team, and I did not have to walk home or walk to a car or any of that by myself. And they made sure that I was safe because the Secret Service wasn't helping. The Metro Police Department wasn't helping. There are a lot of people that stand right outside the White House gates. That's why they put fences up because people are angry and they're willing to resort to violence. And in this case, I did not feel safe when I was leaving the sort of the perimeter of the White House until I got back into the perimeter of my own house. It was terrifying. Women journalists have reported situations like these getting worse year after year, especially as the pandemic has driven many of us further online. We spoke to a researcher who broke down the numbers. I'm Dr. Julie Pizzetti, and I'm Global Director of Research at ICFJ, which is the International Center for Journalists. Her team surveyed around 900 journalists in 125 countries toward the end of last year. They wrote a report for Press Freedom Day titled The Chilling. Almost all of the women I interviewed cried, and they cried because it was the first time they said, in most cases, anyone had really listened to them and had really wanted to hear. And there was this kind of cathartic experience attached to that. Their research found that online violence does seem to be increasing. A different survey back in 2014 put the percentage of women who'd experienced online violence around 20%. This new poll found that number is 73%. We're also hearing from our interviewees just how much worse it has gotten, both because 
of online violence and disinformation, we see in the COVID context the conspiracy networks, for example, piling on. And at the same time, women journalists are having to spend a lot more of their working life in online environments to do their reporting or to connect with their audiences. Kimberly mentioned that the experience taught her who her friends were, and that's not uncommon. What was uncommon, according to the research, was that Kimberly even told Al Jazeera what was happening. Of the survey respondents, only 25% said that they had actually told their employers what they were going through. Much smaller numbers asked for help of any kind. She said they assessed almost no news organizations that were handling this problem well. And to be fair, the control over what's happening really lies in the hands of social media companies. But Dr. Fossetti also saw workplace culture at play. So for the most part, what women reported was feeling that they couldn't say anything because it would either risk their career or they'd be judged as weak and that they'd have another hill to climb in terms of proving that they were worthy of assignment X, Y or Z. Dr. Pusetti's research showed the most common response from employers who were informed of harassment was no action at all. Then when they did speak, it was a sort of brush-off, a you just need to grow a thicker skin kind of brush-off. And as one of the journalists who spoke to us from Kenya said, um, to grow a thicker skin, that is not a defence against any kind of rape threat or digital security attack. Dr. Prosetti also said that the numbers of women who go farther than telling their employers is even smaller. Just 11% of the women surveyed had complained to the police. As for taking legal action, that number was just 8%. And those figures are actually higher than we expected. And that's why I wanted to talk to another colleague, because she's in that tiny percentage of women who took a legal step. Rada Owais is a presenter for Al Jazeera's Arabic channel. How long have you been at Al Jazeera? Actually, this month I completed 15 years. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. I've been there for 12 years and that feels like a long time. And then I hear 15 and I think, wow, (laughs) that's a very long time. When I reached Rada, one of the first things she told me was that she'd removed basically all apps from her phone because of what happened to her last June. She was having dinner with her husband in Doha for his birthday. We were relaxed. We were happy. And then I received this message from my colleague, and she was so shocked. She said, Rada, you're under attack. Those pictures, those pictures. And I said, what pictures? They were pictures of Rada in a jacuzzi, and they'd been doctored to look even more salacious. They put it in a way where they pixeled the swimsuit as if they are pixeling my body, my own naked body. To make it look like you weren't wearing anything. Exactly. And they started to say, Rada is in the jacuzzi of the chairman of Al Jazeera, and she was prostituting herself. Oh my gosh. And they tweeted that 40,000 times during less than 24 hours. Rada said she didn't sleep the entire night. It wasn't just the attacks. It was the photo itself. It was actually a screenshot from a video, a video taken by accident. It was so short, that she'd forgotten it even existed, and she'd never sent it to anyone. When I saw the pictures, at that point, I was perfectly sure that they were in my phone, spying on me. As if you have a thief in your house, in your bathroom, in your kitchen, in your bedroom. I looked at my apartment and I told my husband, I feel 
that I am I have cameras in every corner of the apartment. Raza thought that her phone had likely been hacked using infamous software known as Pegasus. And legal investigators later found evidence backing that up. The software is called Pegasus, and it doesn't matter whether you're an iOS or Android person, your phone could become a target. It is the company that is helping governments around the world to spy on you. An Israeli surveillance software tool capable of accessing microphones, cameras and other data has been tracked to 45 countries around the world. Pegasus can make cracking the phone of an activist or a journalist as simple as a phone call, even if the target doesn't answer it. It was a whole operation, very well planned, orchestrated. Not anybody can go into your phone and do this operation. It's an operation that costs more than $1 million. As for the social media attacks, there were prominent Twitter users from the Gulf who jumped in on the hashtag. But Gada said it was a result of what's known in Arabic as electronic flies. Thousands of Twitter bots and trolls that swarm for all kinds of political purposes, directed by countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and many others. They have the same profile picture. They were open on the same date. They have the same tweets. So I was a part of this uh, propaganda machine to assassinate my character. It was crazy. It was really crazy. And now when I remember it, I still can't believe it. Rata believes she was targeted because of how she spoke about politics in the Gulf. The blockade of Qatar by other Gulf countries, the war in Yemen, the targeting of political activists. She had been harassed for years, and this was the next level. What were they expecting? Just to see, you know, just a picture of me in a swimsuit would silence me, would shame me. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are idiots. <laughs> and I, I always thought that they are idiots and that provoked them more and more. And I think this is why they chose me, because I defy them. They were attacking me on Twitter every day, every day, every day. So I used to retweet the attacks to make fun of them. And that provoked them more and more. And you defied them in a very big way. You did something different than many women, I think, would do in this situation. You fought back. Yes. The numbers are very low when it comes to women who go to even to their bosses, let alone take legal action. And you are taking legal action. You filed a suit. Can you tell me about that? Yes. When I was sure that I was hacked and spied on, I said, I have to do something. It, it's illegal. It's a crime. And if I don't do anything about it, they will think that they, they won't. For Rada, it was more than a symbolic fight. There's also a specter that hovers over many journalists facing threats. Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. Rada knew him. They used to commiserate about online trolls together. I said, okay, if they can spy on me and hack my phone and leak the pictures, that means they are ready to do something else. Maybe also they can kill me and they can get away with it. So this is when I decided to fight back. And because it was a crime, I had to do something legal. And when I discovered that there are American citizens involved in this operation, I decided to file the complaint in Florida and the United States. 
Rata's lawyers discovered that some of the accounts tweeting about her did belong to real people who were based in Florida. And so she filed a lawsuit there, naming the crown princes of Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi among the defendants. Rata's lawyer says all the defendants named have responded to the lawsuit. They're named as individuals, not as representatives of their government. Most of them responded with motions to dismiss the case, some of them based on sovereign immunity, which means that the United States doesn't have jurisdiction over the case. Although taking legal action is rare, Rada didn't feel like it was a choice. That night when I was under attack, I told my husband, I I don't have choices actually. Either I I, I disappear in order not to uh, engage with them, that means you commit suicide, you don't exist anymore as a journalist, or you fight back. And I fought back on Twitter, but you cannot fight an army of trolls and bots. You cannot fight that alone. Dr. Posetti says many journalists she spoke to have found themselves faced with Rada's choice. And it means more women are being forced out of the paths they'd chosen in journalism. There are brave women who do put themselves forward to fight this issue. But many of the women felt so at risk and so damaged that they were withdrawing in all sorts of ways. They were quitting their jobs. They were asking for their bylines to be removed from stories They were asking to be taken off air. They were asking to be transferred to beats that were less likely to attract online violence. And they regretted that immensely, but they were trying to preserve their sanity and protect their families. Filing the lawsuit hasn't been the end of Rada's worries. She still has to consider her physical safety every day. I asked some security experts, am I in danger? Will they kill me? Will they arrest me or kidnap me? They told me, you're not safe if you don't take care. If you won't be careful, you won't be safe. And what does be careful mean? Careful means if I travel, I have to be very careful not to share my location. My phone should be always disconnected. I, I shouldn't travel alone. I could not travel to countries where these countries might help the Saudi regime to kidnap me or to do something bad for me. I have to be careful. And the expert said, if you want these people to disappear from your life, you have to disengage. He said, you can stay, you can can remain a journalist, but try to avoid provoking them. And I said, okay, this is how they silence you. And in order to protect yourself, you have to disengage. And that means they got what they want. What happened to both Rada and Kimberly are extreme versions of something that affects women across the board, and not just journalists. There are also sources and experts turning away from the public eye. And younger women increasingly say they're discouraged from even pursuing journalism because of the attacks they know they might face. And that's why Rada and Kimberly keep showing up to work. About the lawsuit, I will fight till the end, not only for me, but it's also very important for the rest of my colleagues and also in in every corner of this world where there is a female journalist being attacked just because she's a female and she speaks the truth to the governments. If these governments silence us, imagine how many young girls will also lose the opportunity of education, of getting their basic human rights, 
every person lends something to the story that others can't. And there's no question that women are needed to tell the stories. There are many people that don't feel comfortable talking to someone other than a woman. Every bad thing that has happened to me as a woman in journalism, and it's a bit of a list, I hate to say, but I'm so glad that every single one of those things happened because it allows me to relate to someone who's feeling vulnerable sharing their story and to having the courage to help others by sharing their story. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back.